Well, tonight is our last sermon in a series that we've been doing on the attributes of God. And, and tonight we are going to be talking about something that we often talk about here, and that is uh, the grace of God. But because that is an attribute of God, I figured, oops, a little too much echo. I'll just go without the microphone. I figured, um, <clears throat> I figured since uh, it is an attribute of God that we ought to cover it, and it's a good thing to close on. And one of the finest passages that teaches the grace of God comes out of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. So I want to read that. I'll pause for prayer, and then we'll get into it. It reads like this. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Oh, Father, how I pray that this attribute of yours would be made so abundantly clear tonight through my feeble and very imperfect lips. Oh God, I pray that we would just begin to mine the riches that are your grace and that through doing so, we'd be free. I ask this in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, in some ways, tonight's sermon is going to be a little bit of shooting from the hip for me. Uh, not because I uh, didn't prepare anything I did. I prepared a sermon. I, I got it here on my iPad. I wrote the thing out for you. Um, but it's just that I, I have so much to say about this topic that I could go on for days and days and days. And so it was tough for me to narrow down exactly what I wanted to say. Because it really is this simple, like the grace of God and understanding the grace of God is transformative. It, cha it, can, it changes everything. I remember when, when it first dawned on me, the, the sort of majesty of the grace of God. I was 18 years old. I had just signed up to be part of this Bible college program. Frankly, I did it only to hang out with my best friend. I didn't really have a desire to go to Bible college. It was just that my best friend was going, and I was like, okay, I guess I'll go because I want to hang out and have fun. 
Uh, and uh, I remember sitting in a class that was being taught on the book of Galatians. My professor was a man named Tim Istabo. And he taught something from Galatians, which is really this book all about the grace of God, and about how free one's salvation is, that for the first time, even though I was already a Christian, it felt like this light bulb went off and everything, all things became new. Like everything changed radically after that class. Because he was telling us that no matter how how much we had messed up, no matter how sinful we were, and I knew I was a sinner, that no matter what, the grace of God was bigger still. It's like Jack Miller once said about humanity, you're a lot worse off than you think you are, but cheer up. In Jesus, you're far more loved than you ever could have imagined. And so... I get passionate about this because I know, I know what it does. I know what God does by grace. It transforms people. And yet, as much as this is the case, and I would say it is really, I mean, the grace of God found through Jesus Christ is the central story of Scripture. It is. It's the point. i got to tell you, it's frustrating to listen to sermons sometimes and hear it talked about so little, so often. I hear sermons about all the things that we ought to be doing as Christians a lot from other preachers, many of whom I like very much. And maybe just a sermon every once in a while on this grace of God found in Jesus Christ. And I think the reason that is I think the reason that is because the more one emphasizes what we are to do, the more it feels like we can have some skin in the game. The more it feels like we have control. And what grace does is grace tells us, in fact, no. Control is rested out of your hands, and actually it's all God doing the verbs. It's all God doing the work. And there's something scary. There's something a little threatening about that because it means, like, I literally don't get to contribute at all to this whole salvation game. So that's why Martin Luther could say to be convinced in our hearts that we have forgiveness of sins and peace with God by grace alone is the hardest thing. There's a sense in which it's, it goes completely against our nature. You want an illustration of that? I, uh, I've had this happen many times where I've uh, given a friend money that needed help and it, uh, they didn't like the way they felt afterwards. They always felt like they owed me something. They, they, to receive something for free just feels very foreign to us. And what grace tells us is that God saves us completely and utterly free. He takes all the cost of it on his own shoulders. So let's talk about it. From Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 and 10. What is grace all about? Well, first of all, grace is all God's work. For the first three, three verses of this chapter, Paul describes in really vivid language how spiritually destitute humanity is, including us. Listen to the words he uses. We're dead in trespasses and sins. We followed the world's ways. It's not a good thing. We followed after the devil. That's the way he puts it. We were carried away by our passions in our minds and bodies. 
under the wrath of God for our sins. I mean, we made God angry, potentially. Paul presents humanity in this way to show us just how utterly hopeless we truly are in and of ourselves to affect any real change in the salvation game. I feel like I talk about this all the time, and I do, but the reason I do is because it's very easy for us to forget it. Paul does this too throughout all of his letters in his sermons. He just won't let people fall under the illusion that they can do anything to contribute to their salvation. Theologian Gerhard Faraday states it this way. He says, the gospel of justification by faith is such a shocker, such an explosion, because it is an absolutely unconditional promise. It is not an if-then kind of statement, but a because-therefore pronouncement. Because Jesus died and rose, your sins are forgiven and you are righteous in the sight of God. Full stop. Full stop. Secondly, grace, from our text, is something that comes down. Grace does not wait for the recipient to come to it, but it comes to us. Philippians 2, verse 6. Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The grace of God is not something that waits, but takes the initiative. Helmut Thielicke has one of my favorite quotes. He's a German pastor during World War II. In one of his sermons, he said, Jesus Christ did not remain at base headquarters in heaven, receiving reports of the world's suffering from below and shouting a few encouraging words to us from a safe distance. No, he left the headquarters and came down to us in the frontline trenches, right down to where we live and where we contend with our anxieties and the feeling of emptiness and futility, where we sin and we suffer guilt and where we must finally die. There is nothing that God in his grace does not endure with you. He understands Everything. End quote. Grace makes dead things live. That's what we see in Ephesians. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Grace gives spiritual life. Grace gives new birth. The second birth. Some say being born again, as Jesus uh, refers to it in John 3. 1 Corinthians 1 says, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Again, Gerhard Ferdi puts it this way. In the cross, God has stormed the last bastion of the self, the last presumption that you really were going to do something for him. Can you see that the death of Jesus Christ is your death, that he has died in your place, that he has done it, he has made it, he has created a salvation in the midst of time and his enemies. He is God happening to you. It is all over. It is finished between you and God. He has died in your place, and that death which you must die, 
He has done it in such a way as to save you. He's borne the whole thing. He makes dead things live. When I was growing up, going, I went to youth camps and stuff, youth retreats. There might have been a sermon that would talk about this, but then the way it was often presented, they might say, you know, in your sin, you're dead. But then they might say at the end, now, God is coming to you, and you have to decide whether you want to come to him or not. They might give that sort of opportunity. Now, I totally get what they're saying, and I don't begrudge that language necessarily in a certain context. But this goes further than that. What the Bible is saying here is that by nature, we can't make a decision. We're dead. Dead things don't decide. Dead things don't choose life. That's why the word there is God made us alive. He didn't ask permission for it. He didn't, he, he's not, he actually, you know, I used to hear a phrase often when I was younger that God is a gentleman. No, he's not. He doesn't ask first. He just takes away your sins and gives you life. That's how he rolls. Grace doesn't give you what you deserve. I mean, we're called children of wrath here. Wrath is a really, I mean, I hate that word. It's such a scary word, isn't it? Wrath? I mean, I get anger, but wrath just seems like lightning bolts shooting from the eyes, you know, at me. It's really terrifying. But that's what, by nature, the Bible says we all deserve. We all, we all are under wrath, anger. We deserve God being angry at us. But grace says, I'll take the punishment you deserve. As a matter of fact, grace gives you what you don't deserve. So it doesn't give you what you do deserve, but it gives you everything you don't deserve. One of my mentors, Tim Keller, said grace is to be let into a place that you don't have a right to be. Grace is to be let into a place that you don't have a right to be. I'm sure many of you are familiar in here with the story of Les Miserables. Uh, if you've, or you've seen the musical at some point. If you haven't seen it here in the city, don't worry, it's coming back. It's just a guarantee. It always does. Um, and it's, I, I, I love it. I love the whole story. But my favorite part is, of course, uh, involving Jean Valjean and a pastor whose house he stays at. In case you don't know the story, just to frame it for you a little bit, the story is set in France around the time of the French Revolution and centers around this hardened ex-con named Jean Valjean. And at the beginning of the story, Valjean has just gotten out of prison and he has just spent 19 years in hard labor daily uh, trying to, you know, just make it. And he finally gets out and he has no money. He has nowhere to go. And so, uh, you know, he steals some food uh, to be, you know, just to feed himself. And the years in prison have made him something of an awful man, frankly. I mean, he gets out and he's just as hard as you could be. And so he has nowhere to spend the night. And he knocks on a pastor's door in hopes that the pastor will feed him and let him spend the night, and the pastor does. The pastor not only feeds him, but gives him a bed. But Jean Valjean, you know, is just, he's kind of like in this animal state. He's just all about survival mode, and that's it. And he notices as he's eating that there is some very fine silverware, very valuable silverware in the living room of this pastor's house. And so after the pastor and his wife go to bed, he gets up, 
steals all the silverware and takes off. Well, Valjean eventually gets caught by the police. And he's caught with the silverware, and so they know, you know, they're pretty sure that it's come from this priest's house. And the, the cops bring Valjean to this, this person's house to confirm whether it was indeed his silverware. But then something totally unexpected happens. The pastor does indeed confirm, yes, it's my silverware. But then says, you forgot the candlestick holder as well. Says, yes, this is my silverware, but I, I, I gave it to him last night. And in this very poignant scene in the film, the pastor looks at Jean Valjean, and Valjean is struck by the grace he's receiving. Like, he can't believe that he's not being sold out by this pastor after he's stolen from him. And he looks Valjean in the face, and he says, Jean Valjean, with these candlestick holders, I have ransomed your soul back to God. Grace. Grace gives you the silverware and the candlestick holders. Grace gives you what you don't deserve. Grace accepts you. Isn't that great? In a city where we're constantly told that we're not acceptable unless we have this much status and this much money and this much accomplishment. I mean, this city is all about proving that you're acceptable enough. No matter where you go. But grace tells you, no matter how much you've botched it, no matter how much you've messed it up, no matter how beautiful or ugly you are, it doesn't matter. Grace accepts you. God's grace in Christ says, I love you right where you are. Nothing can and will ever change that. I'm going to make you more like me, and I'm going to change you into something that looks more and more like Christ. Yes, but I love you, and I accept you now. It's because of grace. There's a wonderful story I've told before about <clears throat> this little girl named Marianne Bird. She was born with a cleft palate, had was quite noticeable. She couldn't hear very well in one ear. She had all sorts of deformities, and of course, kids would make fun of her. And and she didn't. She felt, you know, always sort of, um, you know, on in the spotlight because of her deformities. And the thing that she hated more than anything else in school was something called the whisper test. Each year, the teacher would whisper something in the child's ear, and you were supposed to cup your other ear, and, uh, and then you would respond back to the teacher. So it was a test for hearing. Well, she had a bad ear, and she was just so embarrassed about the bad ear and the palate and all that stuff. She just felt so unworthy, so unworthy all the time. And so she would cheat during the whisper test. She would go up and she kind of cut her hand over her ear so she could still hear with her good ear and then respond back to the teacher. Apparently the teacher knew this, caught wind of it. And so Mary Ann Bird went up to the front of the class to the teacher. And she writes, Miss Leonard leaned forward to whisper Quote, I waited for those words which God must have put into her mouth, those seven words which changed my life. She did not say, the sky is blue, or you have new shoes, 
what she whispered to me was, I wish you were my little girl. Grace accepts you, cleft palate and all, bad hearing and all, sins and scars and all, and says, son, daughter, I'm happy to have you. Is it okay for you to acknowledge and imagine that God loves you so much that as his word says, this is in the Bible, I'm not making it up, that he loves you so much that he quote-unquote sings over you? I can't help but think about me putting my own children to bed when they were babies. And me singing to them very poorly, not a good singer. I am a decent drummer, but not a good singer. But my kids didn't care apparently, it would put them to sleep eventually. Maybe it was just to escape the awful sound of my vocals. But the thought of singing over my children and bringing them comfort as they fell asleep. There's not too many things more intimate than that. God says in his grace, he does that with you. With you. Not big, multiple you. You and you and you. Individuals. Can you accept that? Can you buy that? Grace makes enemies into sons and brothers and friends. Romans 5 says, while we were still sinners, in the act of rebelling against him, in the act of throwing tantrums against him, in the act of running away from him, Christ died for us. Because of this, John 15, 15 says, no longer do I call you servants, but I call you friends. Romans 8 says that Jesus is the firstborn among many brothers sisters. And not only that, the Bible tells us we have received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters by whom we can come to this glorious, invisible, almighty God that we sang about earlier and cry, Abba, Father. Okay, so that's what grace is. I could go on and on, but I'll stop now. I'm not done with my sermon. Don't worry, I got more. I want to tell you what grace isn't. Grace is not God is your co-pilot. Grace is God as sole pilot, yes. But he's not your co-pilot. Some of us may have come in here thinking that. Because there's a saying, there's a bumper sticker, somewhere that says it. Nonsense. He's the sole pilot. He's flying the ship. He's run, he's ruling the roost. I like this one line from Michael Horton it says, I have yet to see a headline like drowning victim rescued by superior clinging. It always is the lifeguard who is credited with the rescue. That's the idea. God's not your soul. He's not your co-pilot. He's the soul pilot. He's the lifeguard that rescues. Grace isn't your best life now. It's his best life imputed to you. Grace doesn't promise you the best life now. It promises that he'll be with you through whatever your life has now. Grace isn't, of course, a license to sin. God saves us by grace, loves us by grace, continues to love us. But, but actually, we're told in Titus 2 that grace is the very thing that will inspire us to want to obey. Check this out. Titus 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And what does it do to us? 
trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. You hear that? Grace, rather than being a license to just kind of go out and destroy our own lives and our neighbor's lives, is the opposite. It actually causes us, the more we realize how much God has graced us, the more we find ourselves wanting to obey what he has to tell us. So let me close with just asking a very simple question. Can you believe it? Can you believe it? Let me pray. There are words, Father, that we use in our songs to describe grace. Amazing. We're probably very familiar with that. Uh, incredible. Indescribable. One that seems to fit to... Because, because we're aware of our own problems and aware of the problems around us... One might be unbelievable. Too good to be true. Father, I pray for those sitting here tonight that might be prone to thinking that. As they ponder the question, can they believe it? May you just open up the floodgates by your spirit for them to receive that indeed this is, it is really that good. It's really that good. And Father, let us rejoice as a result. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, now before we go to the table and receive the body and blood of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of all our sins, once again, grace. We're going to take an offering. You are under no obligation to give in this offering at all. But if you'd like to give, there's a few ways you can. Uh, there's an offering plate that will go around. There's also a square reader in the back if you would prefer to use a card. And then also we're on Venmo as Epiphany Church NYC if that's easier for you. Just a few options for you to give. Thanks for being here tonight again.